0: Well, good morning, Browncroft. I'm an old Baptist preacher. You got to do better than that. Good morning, Browncroft. All right, there we go. There we go. Amen. Well, good morning, folks. I'm excited to be with you. My name is Daniel Fagbui. Now, my last name is Nigerian, and loosely translated, it means Browncroft Rocks. Okay. It's been a joy to get to know folks, uh, Sherwin and his family, and the leadership team, and Pastor Rob, Pastor Mike, and the folks on staff here. I'm excited. Uh, to get to know even more people. Um, and if the Lord is calling us together, we'll have much time for that. But I suspect you didn't come here to just hear me talk about how wonderful you are. But you probably came here to hear God's word. Is that fair? All right, so let's dig into God's word. Now, I was told to fill at home. And so at home, at the church where I currently preach at often, we stand up for God's reading. And so if God's important to you, would you mind... Joking. Would you mind standing for as we read God's word? Amen. Our text this morning will be Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 10. Romans 5, 6 through 10. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. If you're there, say amen. Amen. And if you need help, say slow your roll, pastor. (laughs) For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by the blood of Christ, or by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we invite you here as if we had a choice. Father, we ask that you would be with us. You would speak through this meager, weak man, and that your word will come forth and convict us, yes, but encourage us to seek you, encourage us to press in deeper into you. And made the Spirit of God use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God so that everything we do today will be done to the glory of God. And all of God's people said? Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, Browncroft, I'm excited to be with you, especially as we enter into this series, Reconcile. Now, last week, Pastor Rob kicked off this series, this seven-part series called Reconcile, the life you were made for. And my task today, my hope, if you will, as we continue this series, is to explore what it means to be reconciled to God. What it means to be reconciled to God. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to unpack three observations in this text, three observations that will help us get a better understanding of our nature as being reconciled to God. But before we do that, before we unpack that, let's define terms. Now, as you get to know me, you'll know that that's one of my favorite things to say, because in our world, words don't mean the same for everybody. When I say reconcile, be honest, perhaps what comes to mind is racial reconciliation. Maybe if you're currently going through a hard time with your spouse, maybe it's spousal reconciliation. But whatever it is, we come to words with our own biases, with our own connotations, if you will, with our own experiences. And so some words may mean something to you. See, I love Sherwin and I'm already getting to know him, but the love I have for him pales in comparison to the love I have for my wife. It should. It better. Otherwise, we got some conversations to have, brother. It's a little weird. <laughs> and so words are not univocal. They don't have the same meaning. They're equivocal. It means different things to different people. And so when we talk about reconciliation, it's helpful for us to unpack what it means. So the biblical word for reconciliation, you don't need to know the word, but what it means essentially, what it carries with it, is the basic idea of exchanging hostility for friendship. The word there means essentially to to restore a favorable and friendly relation between two people who were at odds. It is a bringing back together of people. And so this is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the context of marriage where he says to the husband and to the wife, if you've been separated, please either stay separated and stay single or be reconciled back to each other. So when we speak about being reconciled to God, what we are essentially saying is that we want to remove or we hope to have removed any hostility or separation that exists between God and man and reestablish a favorable and friendly relationship between God and man. But that begs a question. If we are being told to reconcile, it assumes that we were reconciled to begin with and stop being reconciled. Fair enough? Because if, we if we need to repair something and assume that it used to be a pair, stop being a pair, and then we are repairing it. Fair enough? So then how did we get here? I'm glad you asked. The answer is simple. All of humanity has sinned against God. And in turn, that has placed a chasm between God and man. You see, the Grand Canyon has nothing, to, nothing over the chasm that currently exists between man and God. Paul unpacks this. This is the whole discussion of Romans, especially chapter one through four. Paul uh, unpacks the reality that our sins have eternally separated us from God. And as such, we are deserving of the consequences, the just consequences of our sins. So, apart from Christ, we have no hope of being reconciled to God or being rescued from the just consequences of our sins. This brings us to our first observation. Namely, that reconciliation is the monergistic work of God. I don't have to define that, do I? Monergistic. I know you use that every day. Every single day. Morning, morning, good morning, morning. Good morning, morning. I know you use that every day. But monergistic is a compound word. It, is, it comes from the word monergism, right? It's two words. Mono, singular. One, only. Or gone, work. To do something. When you put the words together, it is essentially the work of One. The one-way work of God. So when I say monergistic, is that the reconciliation between God and man is monergistic, it means that God alone is the one who reconciles us to himself. Monergistic work of God is that he himself brings us to himself. It is not synergistic. You and God are not in an equal partnership. You bring 50, God brings 50. Nor is it solely dependent on us to be reconciled to God. That's an amen moment. It is not synergistic. It is not solely on us. We see this truth in in, in chapter, in verse six. Look with me, if you will. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were helpless. What does that mean? Uh, to be helpless means to be spiritually and morally weak, to be spiritually and morally disabled, to be unable to help oneself. This is the state of humanity. You see, before the fall, this is the state of humanity after the fall, but before the fall, Genesis chapter three, before Genesis chapter, three, mankind experienced and enjoyed uninterrupted communion and fellowship with God. Perfect. Walked in the middle of the garden, the Bible says, in the cool of the day. Say, what's up, Adam? How you doing? I assume Jesus, uh, God was black. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Hey, Adam, how's it going? I'm good. But then in Genesis, later on in chapter 3, God walks down and Adam and Eve start to hide. You got kids? Anybody got kids in here? If you pull up to the house and your kids start to run and hide in the basement, especially if you don't have a basement, (laughs) what does that tell you? Something's happened. Somebody messed up with the DVD or maybe, you know, new Fandango with the streaming device. Somebody did something wrong that's causing them to not feel the freedom that they felt with you. Because normally, hey, daddy, hey, mommy, how you doing? It's exciting. When they go start hiding, you know something's afoot. Something went wrong. Mankind experienced a unique and beautiful fellowship with God before the fall. After the fall, that fellowship and communion with God was irreparably severed. In fact, this reality is captured for us in what I would consider to be the most chilling and ominous verse in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Reading out of the Amplified Translation, listen to this. So God drove man... Adam and Eve, out of the garden. And at the east of the garden, he permanently stationed a cherubim. That's plural, right? My Hebrew professor would say, keruv is one, and then keruvim is multiple, right? So there's at least two angels here, two cherubims that are here, right? And if you know anything about angels in the Bible, one of them can kill 150,000 people. So this is a overkill right now. God places them at the entrance. And not only did he place these magnificent creatures there, he gives them a flashing blade. Lord, you had me at placement alone. Now you give him a flashing blade, a turn round and round, protect the guard and guard the entrance and access to the tree of life. They were booted out of God's presence because of their disobedience. So what they once experienced, that, that uninterrupted communion, interrupted, severed, with no hope to return. And they, and we, were therefore destined for a dismal future. We were destined to stay and remain in a fallen state because we had no more access to the tree of life, the tree that gives life. We had no more access, essentially, to the presence of God, the one who nourishes us and who gives us life. Mankind lost, lost, as it were, access to God and therefore entered into a dead spiritual state and a dying physical state. What do i mean by that Uh, the bible says that god said if you if and when you eat out of this tree you will surely die he didn't lie they did they died spiritually their death is nothing but separation right so when people die on this earth we say they're separated from us forever right it's permanent separation or you could say to somebody when you're angry hopefully nobody in here because you guys are holy but when you're angry you say you're dead to me what are you saying we're done we're separate. It's as if you don't belong to me anymore. And so death happened, but it happened spiritually, finally. But physically, they entered into an ongoing progressive decay. Human lifespan, human life quality began to go down and down and down. Everything we experience from pandemics to murder to mass shooting to everything else that goes on in this world, is because at this point, human beings made a decision to disconnect from God, and God said, amen. You want it to be away from me, have your way. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says there's two types of people. There are people who say to God, your will be done, and there are people who God says to them, your will be done. Let's see how far that takes you. At this moment, relationship is severed. But, but don't be fooled. It isn't passive. It isn't like it happened to us. We actively oppose the will of God. Um, This fallen state is seen in the descriptions that Paul uses. He uses four descriptions in this section to describe our nature. Look with me, if you will, in verse 6. He says, for while we were still helpless, as defined, that is spiritually and morally weak and disabled while we were helpless. So apart from God, after the fall, we were the helpless one. Secondly, we were the ungodly. Again, in verse, in verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. What does that mean? Those who are irreverent towards God, irreverent to the things of God, driven by sensuality, not by spirituality. Friends, what would it look like if the big C church, the big church, begin to believe the word of God and live the word of God rather than what social media or the world says we ought to be? Let me bring it home. What's it look like if you and I decide to stand firm on God's word, come what may? Does your marriage change? Does our schools change? Do our communities change? The answer would be yes. Helpless, ungodly. Those who are irreverent towards God, driven by sensuality and lawlessness, those who decide to be their own gods. And then thirdly, sinners. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his love to us while we were what? Sinners. Well, what does this mean? Does this mean that when you come to Christ and you're reconciled right to you never sin again? No, that's not what it means. What it means is that this is a habitual, ongoing propensity towards disobeying and disregarding God, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Essentially, think of it this way. The word here, Hamashiach, has to do with an archer who pulls the archer, who strains it back, aims for the mark, but misses it. So whether you miss it by an inch or by a mile, you missed it. Think about that the next time you think you're better than somebody else and you think that their sin is worse. Oh, I would never do that. Well, you struggle with pride, it seems. Perhaps we're just better than others at keeping our sins internally or maybe in a way, in a place where we're good. But I haven't met a human being who is perfect. And if you're here and you're perfect, let me know who you are so I can socially distance from you because clearly you've lost touch with reality. Is there anyone who is perfect here? Anyone who on your best day have never missed it? There is none. But God demonstrates his, word, his love for us that while we were sinners. So, so our state after the fall Without God, helpless, ungodly, sinners. And then look at verse 10. Enemies of God. For while we were enemies of God, while we were hostile towards God. While we hated God. We were those who, whose lifestyle is in opposition to God. You may say there, and you say, I've never hated God. Even, even when I wasn't in God, I didn't hate God. No, your very lifestyle that disregards or, 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 or acts like God doesn't exist is viewed by God as hatred, as opposition. Because essentially what you're saying is, I wish you didn't exist. You remember the prodigal son story where he asked his father for his inheritance? What he's essentially saying in that context is that I wish you were dead, because you only get the inheritance when your father's dead. And so when you say to God, I want to live life away from you, apart from you, you are essentially saying, I wish you were not existent. I wish I was my own God, helpless, ungodly, sinful, and enemies of God. You see, before the fall... Man was what theologians, you don't need to know this term, but just know the concept of it. Man was what theologians call posse picare. He can sin, has the ability to sin. And man was non-posse peccare; He also had the ability to not sin. So before the fall, you had what some may refer to as free will. You had the ability to choose not to sin. You had the ability to say no to sin and mean it, right? How many times have you ever tried to quit something and it's like, uh, maybe tomorrow? New year, new resolution. How many times have you had that resolution? The propensity of humanity is to sin. But after the fall, initially before the fall, he was able to sin and not sin. After the fall, he could do nothing but sin. His very disposition, his his very desire was to sin. You could be locked up in a cage somewhere with nobody around, you would still sin. Because that's how we're built. We're built to want to be our own gods. And the reality is that the chasm that was established in the garden between man and God only continues to widen and widen and widen. This is why the divine appraisal of humanity is that we are helpless. The chasm that exists with us is as a result of our sin nature, that we cannot but sin. That's a heck of a sermon to be given while you're candid is isn't it? It's supposed to be a feel-good message like, hey, you're wonderful. Hallelujah. Praise God. We're going to do life together. But you don't want that type of person here. You want someone who's going to be faithful to God's word. Amen? You see, in other words, humans apart from God are both unwilling and unable to obey God because by nature we are bound and blinded by the power and the presence of sin. Romans chapter 3 captures this very well. Romans chapter 3 captures the dismal state of humanity apart from God and highlights both our inability and unwillingness to be reconciled with God. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 and 23. Read out of the New Living Translation. As scripture says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. Let that land on you for a second. I've been to churches that will say we are a seeker-sensitive church. The Bible says no one is truly seeking God. I know people who seek the benefits of God. I know people who seek the God of their imagination, But the Bible is clear that God is the one who woos. God is the one who works in the heart of man to draw you, to open our eyes, that we may see the goodness of God and then say, amen, I want that. At best, we can only be credited for making a good investment. Text goes further, verse 12. All, you know what all means in Greek? All. All have turned away and all have become useless. The term useless there is, could be better translated as profitless. It means that God has, has put an investment of his life, his spirit into us, and his return on investment is sinfulness, hostility, dishonor, and disrespect. Goes further. No one is good, not a single one. Even my cute grandmother Daniel? No one. Even Mother Teresa Daniel? No one. You see, when you rate or grade and the standard is another human being, then we can begin to say that's a good person. If, you, if your standard is me, oh, you're good. All of y'all are good compared to me. But if our standard is God, perfection, no one is good. Not a single one. Look at verse 23. For everyone has sinned and we fall short of the glorious standard of God. Here's what you see here. All have sinned. It's what we call the eros tense in Greek. It just is a snapshot of all humanity. It says, as I look at humanity, all humanity has sinned. But then it says, not only have we sinned, past tense and perfect sort of capturing of humanity's state, but we continue to fall short of the standard of God. It is an ongoing offense against God. The existence of humanity apart from God is that they have all sinned. We have all sinned, but then those who are apart from God continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. Even those who are in God are imperfect. They perhaps are just only the people who know and are familiar with their imperfection and run to the cross. Therefore, since humanity is irredeemably helpless, it only makes sense that the reconciliation work of God has to be monergistic, has to be one way. If we are helpless and weak and our nature is to be sinful, ungodly, and haters of God, then for, God, for us to be connected to God, to be reconciled back to God, must take the act of God to do so. Amen. If not for God, we would be condemned to eternal death and eternal separation from Him, having to endure the punishment, the just punishment of our sins. Now, in the old black church, we would say, but God. But God, that while we were helpless, ungodly, sinful, hostile, Christ did what? Die for us. But God. He died to redeem us. But God. He died to rebirth us, but God. He died to reconcile us, but God. Friends, that's an amen moment. That you don't have to rely on your imperfect, incomplete works to earn what God has done all by himself. So maybe that begs another question. Perfect, holy, Complete, needing nothing, lacking nothing God, saves weak, ungodly, insolent, and hostile people? Why? Why would he do it? Did we deserve it? Does he owe it to us? Does he owe us anything? If you're here and you're a Christian, maybe even if you're not Christian, but perhaps even more so for Christians, does your lifestyle reflect a sense of entitlement as it pertains to God. Do you think he owes you good health? Does he owe you a worry-free, anxiety-free, trouble-free life? Does he owe you a perfect family? 2.5, as they say, right? I don't know how they do the math. Is that a short child? (laughs) 2.5. Does he owe you that? Does he owe us a perfect marriage, perfect kids? This brings us to our second observation about the nature of our reconciliation with God. Not only is it monergistic, but this also bleeds together is that it is also meritless. Reconciliation is a meritless gift of God. It's unearned, undeserved. Look with me if you will, in verse 7 and 8. For one would hardly die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us, his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In these verses, Paul holds up two types of people, a righteous person and a good person. Let me tell you what the distinction is. A righteous person is one who's characterized by moral and ethical excellence. You ever met somebody who's just a decent person? Just a good person. They do good things. They're nice to people. They're kind. They're just respectful. They are the moral equivalents of perfection as much as humans can get there. And you might say to yourself, I'd like to have a drink with that person. Maybe invite them over to, the, to dinner. But I bet you've never said, I'd like to die for that person. Doesn't matter how perfect they are, how morally excellent they seem, you've never said, oh, if you have, amen, that's good, that means you're a super kind person, and I got a couple of car loans that you can help me pay off. <laughs> Ethically excellent, morally excellent human being. Paul says, virtually impossible for somebody to want to die for that person. You, you may wish them well. Uh, you may even help them with their needs. But you wouldn't die in the place of that person. Then he says there's a good person. And the trick the sort of play on words here is here's a morally and ethically perfect person and then the good person, the word good here means beneficial or generous. This is someone that's actually done something for you perhaps personally. Someone that's good to you. Someone that you've experienced their goodness and you might even say, man, that's a good person. I might give you a kidney, but I ain't giving you all of me. So Paul's saying, hey, I doubt if you would die for just someone out there who's just morally good, but maybe perhaps you might even dare die for someone who's been good to you? Someone who's been kind to you, perhaps helped you in your point of need? Again, human nature, self preservation. I don't think the first thing out your mouth is, I die for that person. I think you would say, man, I'd help. You know, as they say back in the days, I put something on it, I put it on layaway, put some love on layaway for you. But I don't know if I would actually die in your place. But in contrast, though, In contrast to a morally and ethically perfect person, and in contrast to a good person who's been beneficial for you, Christ doesn't die for the righteous or the good. He dies for those who hate him. He dies for those who have dishonored and dis... Would you ever even consider dying for someone who hates you and opposes you and lives life in opposition to you? Would that even enter into your calculation? Nobody would do that. And that there lies the upside down, illogical understanding of the sacrifice of Christ. That why would he, because no human would die for a righteous person or even a good person, but he dies for people who were evil towards him, people who lived life in opposition, people who said, I don't care if you exist. Paul says, unlike human beings, God's love is not merited. God's love is not merited. God's love is undeserving. His reconciliation of us is undeserving. I wish I knew this when I was younger in my faith. I spent countless years hurting myself and others, trying to earn what only God can give freely. I grew up in a church that made me believe that I had to earn. In fact, I wouldn't even say they made me. Let me not blame them. Because naturally in the human instinct is a sense of pride that wants to say, I did it by myself. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Which doesn't make sense because if you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, you would fall. That's kind of weird. But there's something in us that at best wants synergy And at worst, we want to take credit for everything. Success has many fathers, but failure is a bastard. We want to take credit for it. I know God saved me, but I earned it. I lived a good life. I've been good to people. I've been kind to people. I promise you, there's at least one person on this earth that doesn't feel that way about you. And if that's not true, you haven't lived long enough because you've hurt someone, and you may not even know it. I've hurt people, and some of that we know. And so when we wanna grade about how good we are, if we're grading against human beings, amen, keep at it. Have at it, horse, it goes better. But if your grade is against God, we know that we've earned nothing but the just consequences of our sins. It's meritless, and I wasted so many years So many years being disillusioned and only entering into depression when I realized that I could never attain but God. Through his word, through sound teaching, I was able to understand that I am saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And it is not by works, but it is the grace of God. Friend, if you are here online or in person, I need you to understand, stop the self-salvation project. You will never make it. Just rest in the finished work of Christ. And know that if you didn't earn it, you can't unearn it. That's a good moment right there. You understand what I just said there? You can't lose what you didn't earn. He keeps us. He says, I will lose none who has come to me. I will keep them. No one can pluck them out of my hand. I am the good God who keeps all of them. If one goes missing, I leave the 99 and I go for the one. What a good God. His death and reconciliation for us, of us, is unmerited. He died for us. What does that mean for us? For our benefit, yes, but it also carries the double meaning of in our place. Both meanings are existing here. both senses are there, that he died for our justification, taken upon himself the just wrath of God that we deserve for living in opposition towards God. Look in verse nine, Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. justified by His blood. But I still think the question is still there. Why did he do all of this? We're helpless we can't earn it. So why? I love the way one brother said it. God in Christ died for our sins because he felt like it. Did he need us? Because if God is lacking something, then that means he's incomplete. And if God is incomplete, then he's not God. Need is something that creatures have. The creator should never have a lack, because if he has a lack, that means that there's something missing in him, and therefore incomplete. Does it logical make sense? He felt like it. Now, Paul would say it this way. But God demonstrates his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Translation, Christ died to save us because he loved us. Love is a verb, not a noun. If you say to someone you love them and you don't do anything for their behalf, do you really love them? Coincidentally, this is why I rarely marry couples until I have them make a list of all the things that they would divorce for. Because, you know, everybody gets in front of the pulpit and say, for better, for worse. Right? If that was true, we would have no divorces, right? For better, for worse. So, ma'am, sir, go home, make a list of all the things you would divorce them for that are in the worst category. If you would leave them for that, you got two choices. Change your vows or don't get married. Or just say simply, for better, for better. Because then if you divorce them over the trash, not being taken out, they're okay with it. You told them already. Trash not being taken out over 15 years, that becomes an issue of disrespect. That becomes an issue of you're not partners. That's a bigger issue. But the heart of the issue is that I don't feel like we're together. So is it for better, for better, or for worse, for worse? But God doesn't operate that way. His love is unmerited. He will still love us. Loving us doesn't mean he doesn't discipline us or chastise us or bring us back into his will. It does mean that the end goal is redemptive, not punitive. You understand the difference? He isn't doing it to punish. He's doing it to redeem you. Is there any parent in here who gives their kids everything that they want all the time? Anyone? Would it be love for you to do that? Would love say you give your child everything they want all the time? No. Amen. Daddy, you heard that, right? So the next time he asks you for something, remind him of this sermon so that he, amen. But true love means also saying no. Why God would love and care for and sacrifice and die for people like you and me? Because he felt like it. Because he loved us which then means that his love for us is really not dependent on our actions. There's a freedom there. There There's a freedom there to respect that because Paul makes an argument in chapter 6 and 7 that if the grace of God is so awesome, should we then go in and go go sinning? and Say, hey, since he's going to love me anyway, well, here's what the Bible says about that. If that's your heart, it means that you're not his to begin with. Christ died to reconcile us. His justification of us, his reconciliation of us, is because he loved us. This is bi- biblical love. Question for you, Christian, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever state you're in. Do people have to earn your love? Do people have to earn your goodwill? Are you only good to people because of what you can get in return? Because that's not how God operates. Christians, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, have received an immeasurable amount of grace and therefore should be able to doll out that grace freely to all people, not having them earn grace from us. Amen? This brings us to our third and final observation. Are you with me? Reconciliation is a measure, not the measure, but a measure of God's love for us. So all of these sort of intersect, and they, they sort of reconcile together, if you will. Look at verse 9 and 10. Specifically, look at 10. For while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I don't have time to unpack fully what that means. This is simply what it means in a nutshell. If Christ can suffer for ungodly enemies and hostile people, then how much more would he give us any and everything that we need? Because he's already paid the highest price. If he's willing to die for us, then is there anything that the sovereign Lord would withhold from you? Not rhetorical. It's a real question. Is there anything... That a God who was willing to die for you on the cross, take on your pain, exchange his righteousness for your sinfulness, for our sinfulness, is there anything that he would keep from you? Oh, man, I'm going to go to this section here because y'all are tracking with me. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Look with me, if you will. What then shall we say to all of this? The context here is that he names a whole list of things that cannot separate us from the love of God. It's not an exhaustive list; it's what we call a synecdoche. It's a it's a representative list, right? He says nothing in the future, nothing in the past, nothing in the present will separate us from the love of God. Translation: Nothing can separate God's people from the love of God because the love of God is based on God, not us. And then Paul says, "What then shall we say?" If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be our foe if God is on our side? Verse 32, he who did not withhold or spare even his own son but gave him up for us, will he not also with him freely and graciously give us all other things? If he's willing to die on the cross for the sins that we did, to bring us back to God, there is nothing that God would keep that's good for his children. I have to wrestle with that because when I pray and pray and pray and pray about praying and I don't see something happen, I have to speak to myself and say, you didn't have it because you didn't need it because if you needed it, he would have given it to you because he's a good father who gives good gifts to his children. That's a resting moment because if you think that in God he's supposed to give us everything then we are sadly mistaken friends in summary the reconciliation of us to God is the monergistic work of God he and he alone can reconcile us to himself secondly The reconciliation of us and God is the meritless gift of God. We can't earn what only he can freely give. And lastly, reconciliation is a measure of the work of God in our lives. We cannot fathom the depths. Of his love for us or the provisions that we have in Christ. I love the way that the Bible says it says, ears have not heard, eyes have not seen what God has prepared, nor has it entered into the heart of mind what God has prepared for those who love him. You can fathom the depths of God's provision for you because if you can, then you have a better imagination in God. But you mean to tell me the God who created the heavens and the earth, who spun the universe into existence, is less creative than us? Do you know what Albert Einstein said, an atheist? If the God of the universe, as he looks through the telescopes and studies the laws of relativity, he said, if the God that the Christians worship is this God, then they don't know who they're worshiping. If I look at the universe and how God has put all this together and how God has put just the intricacies of the human body, the biology of the human body. When I start to look at all that, I say to myself, what an awesome God. That's what he did with matter. What does he do in his own kingdom? For in my house there are many mansions. And I go there to prepare a place for you. That where I am, you will be. I will usher you into my presence. When we get there, folks, I get it. It's no more sermons about heaven anymore, folks. The beauty of it, the joy of it, the lack of pain, lack of suffering, to be finally in the presence of the lover and the maker of your soul. What a good God, what a great Father. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian heard the gospel many 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 times can I propose to you that you never outgrow the gospel but you only grow deeper into the gospel and I pray that the freshness of the gospel will wash over your soul that you would encounter Christ in a fresh way and maybe you don't know Jesus whether you're online or here. If you're online, click the prayer button and we'll pray with you and connect with you. But if you're here in person and you have questions, we've got answers. In fact, we only have one answer. His name is Jesus. Doesn't mean that we won't walk through the text with you, your theological questions, amen. Everybody that I've met here, the pastors here, Pastor Rob, Pastor Mike, all of the ministers of God, the people in leisure, they have a heart for God. They will walk and wade through that with you. Amen to that. But the answer you need to wrestle with it's when you step in heaven, we all die, and you stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Your answer can't be I lived a good life because you didn't. Your answer can't be I was perfect to people because you weren't. Your answer, and the only acceptable answer before God is Jesus. He died for me. I'm here on his attempt. Put it on his tab. He's already paid for it. Why try to pay on your own? If you don't know Jesus, the gospel is simple. God is perfect. You are not. And we have been separated by him. We have been separated from him by sin. On our best day, we don't get it. And the perfect God has made a perfect sacrifice for us in Christ Jesus. You are simply asked to put your faith where God put all of our sins on Jesus. I am not interested in coaxing you or forcing you into heaven because if I can force you in, someone else can force you out. I am asking for you to be intellectually honest with yourself. There is more to this life than what we see. And when we all close our eyes, we will all have to stand before God and give an account for the life that we lived. In the words of Augustine, you have made us for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Come to him now. Even if you have questions, let's talk about it. But if God is working on you now and you are ready to speak to God, it's easy. It's not hard. You don't have to know all these words and all this diction and all this stuff. All you simply have to say is, God, save me. Simple. There's a man in the Bible who says, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. D.L. Moody would say, I want to want to believe. Help me to want to want to believe. The gift of God is irrevocable and is unmerited. If you call on him now, he will save you. Let's pray. Father, you know all of our hearts, those of us who have been reconciled to you for a long time, but yet we've cooled to the passion of the gospel. It's no longer real in our life. Lord, I pray afresh that you would come to us, your people. Refresh your calling on us. Refresh our experience of you. And also pray for those who are struggling now with the reality of that. With whether they should put their faith in you or not. Show them, reveal to them who you are. That they may see you like Paul saw you. And submit to your will. And know life and life more abundantly. Father, thank you for this moment. I pray that these human words, these natural words, would affect supernatural change in all of us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.